Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. President's Day is Monday, and that got us thinking about the role of the executive branch in government. And that's something that Barbara Perry thinks about every day, or at least a lot. She is a professor of presidential studies at the University of Virginia. And she said to understand how the president's role has changed and developed over the course of history, we have to go to the beginning, like the real beginning. With George Washington working with a blank slate and having to fill in all the details uh, that were left out of uh, Article Two of the Constitution, which set up the executive branch and the president of the United States. So just as an example, uh, his creation of executive privilege. Most people have heard of that and frequently hear of it now about how much has to be turned over to a court or how much has to be turned over from a president's papers or conversations to, to an investigating committee in Congress. And there's nothing about that in the Constitution or in the laws. It is something that George Washington asserted uh, it, that was then refined by the courts uh, in the Watergate tapes case to say that, well, that applies primarily to military secrets and to confidential diplomatic matters. But that's an example right there of a president starting with the blank slate and asserting a, a power or authority that's not anywhere in the Constitution or anywhere in the written laws. Um, Andrew Jackson uh, another example of greatly increasing um, the the power of the president, in part by the way he saw the presidency, and and he was a, a rough and tumble frontiersman from Tennessee. We also have to take into consideration in the 1830s the uh, growth of the electorate, so that it had just been white male property owners who could vote. By the 1830s, this wave of so-called Jacksonian democracy meant that those who didn't have property, who were white males, now could vote. So they they picked this commoner, a, a general to be sure, but a commoner who has this robust view of the presidency, and he goes toe-to-toe, for example, with the Supreme Court. And then another external factor and obvious turning point is the Civil War, uh, so that Lincoln asserts tremendous authority, sometimes even against the Constitution, as when he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which is uh, written into the Constitution, can be done by the Congress during times of rebellion, but Lincoln did it, Congress was not in, in session. And his point was, why should I follow every jot and tittle of the Constitution if the whole union collapses and there won't even be a Constitution? And then the next big expansion particularly is under FDR with both a depression, a worldwide depression, and then a world war. And that's the presidency that we deal with today with even more power layered on it by these external factors or how people in that office have viewed it. So that's how I would see the big turning points or the crossroads up till now. And how do you, as a historian, determine which things were so-called overreach by the president and which were not? It depends on one's point of view. You can imagine from from the South's perspective uh, in the Civil War era, era whatever Lincoln did in, in taking over, in effect, the Constitution and violating the Constitution was viewed as a gross usurpation of power. Uh, But there is kind of an all's well that ends well view that people have uh, of this, Um, though uh, one of my colleagues writes uh, that after these 
uh, emergencies, after these wars, after these depressions, particularly after wars when presidents assume so much power, that the American people often turn against them and turn against that powerful president. And my colleague calls it American regicide. Uh, we actually try to take down presidents a notch from when they assert this power. But when when we agree that the uh, the ends justifies the means, we're usually supportive of it. So the two-thirds of the people who voted for a re-election of Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 were obviously very happy with the major power he had assumed uh, in the midst of the Great Depression. How many times when the president has ass- asserted a new authority, has that new authority become codified or has become basically accepted as this is something now that the president can do? And were there times when that president was held back from doing that? I, I, I use FDR um, as, a, as a good example. Again, in part because he had a Congress, both houses of Congress with vast majorities of his party on his side. He was pr- passing through pieces of legislation uh, that tremendously expanded not only the power of the president acting, of course, with Congress, but also Uh, at the power of the federal government to attack the Great Depression. Another example, at the beginning of World War II, with uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese, it's an executive order by Franklin Roosevelt to round up Japanese Americans, half of whom were American citizens and born in this country, um, and put them in what we would call in Germany concentration camps. Now you say, are there checks on that? Well, there were attempts at checks by the Supreme Court. And in fact, FDR would go on his fireside chats and say, uh, it's like a a horse that's being, uh, three three horses are drawing a wagon. And and what they do is that we've got two horses, the presidency and Congress are pulling in one direction and this court, this, this bad court is pulling in another direction because it kept trying to check him. And then he tried to pack the court by saying for every justice over 70, he would appoint another up to a total of 15. And that's when Congress and the American people say, no, well, that's a bridge too far. So it is the the way of our system, isn't it, that the Constitution was meant to have all of these checks and balances. And so there are times when presidents, as you say, in some ways get codified in that the whole concept of a powerful president and a powerful administrative state that was as I actually came to existence under FDR, we still live under that. But at various points along the way, the court would try to check him. The American people would try to check him. And then you get examples where, say, in the Vietnam era, so presidents sending troops to Vietnam and sending advisors under Kennedy, then expanding it to half a million troops under Lyndon Johnson. And then what happens is the War Powers Act, which attempts to check the president's war power that that actually gets passed over Nixon's veto uh, in the early 1970s. So the checks and balances typically have worked, but there are times when we, we give in, the American people give in, the courts give in, the Congress gives in, if again, the ends seem to justify the means on the part of the president. It seems, though, that in the last, I don't know how many years this has been, for me, it feels like at least the last 10 years, maybe it's the last 20 years, that executive authority has been less about the president trying to grab power than it's been about Congress abdicating it. I think you're on to something that a part of that is maybe not so much Congress abdicating as much as the polarization and the the close ties between the Republicans and Democrats in terms of uh, not having large majorities or veto-proof majorities means that it's just harder for Congress to act. But I think you also have to add to that mix that when Republicans 
are in charge of Congress, certainly in both houses, when you have a party that is anti-government, it, it, it tends not to want to move. So again, is that abdication? If, it's, if the philosophy is, we don't want the government to act. So we're no, we're not going to do something in that policy realm. Um, I think you have to take that into consideration as well. One example I have of Congress abdicating and giving the president really a, a whole lot of power, especially in foreign affairs, especially in, in sending troops or the use of force overseas. And that was the authorization of military force, which was passed in Congress right after 9-11. But it's been used by the president to justify all sorts of entries into all parts of the world, in part because Congress refuses to take it up and say, well, we are no longer authorizing this. Mm -hmm. So is that Mm -hmm. about Congress not doing its job? Or is that because they don't want to have to take a vote that they may be held accountable for? Or is this that it's better to have the president with more flexibility in dealing with a world that, quite frankly, is pretty unpredictable and it it's no longer a sort of World War II kind of era. I think you're right in many ways to say that Congress abdicated the power that it had wrested from the president in the War Powers Act in the early 1970s as a response to Vietnam and the buildup there, because that was not a declared war. And so Congress abdicated that role But understandably so, when they passed the first most recent so-called AUMF, the Authorization of Use of Military Force, as you say, right after 9-11, that was to authorize use of military force in Afghanistan to go after the Taliban and after bin Laden and al-Qaeda. But another one passed then for Iraq, and that's the one that is far more controversial just in and of itself. And you had people like Ted Kennedy, of course, fighting against that. And you still have people saying, why has that not been overturned? Why are we still fighting under that? I think, though, to your last point, though, the war on terror is not World War II. We are not going to have a signing uh, of of German surrender or Japanese surrender uh, at a time certain, in a place certain, where people put down their arms and then we go in as the occupying force and say, isn't that good? The war is over. And we will reshape that country. We will reshape Germany and we will reshape Japan in our own image and likeness. We will send people to write their democratic constitutions. That is not the way the war on terror will end. It may never end. And so that's what makes it harder, not only to know, just genuinely to know, when do you stop and say enough on these AUMFs and and you turn them over, but it's also politically really hard to do. What if you vote that way one day and there's a big terror attack, heaven forbid, in the states the next day? How does Mm -hmm. that make you look to your constituents? And it's foreign policy really where the presidency has expanded the most. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely a fair assessment. And once again, we go back to the FDR era because in the 1930s, Uh, again, through an executive order and an embargo that he had placed on two warring countries uh, in Latin America and said, we don't want this war to spread. So we're going to place an embargo on any kind of sales of armaments from American companies to these two warring countries. And you can imagine a company that made armaments took a case all the way to the Supreme Court to say, how come the president gets to do this unilaterally? And interestingly, this again is in the mid to late 30s, the Supreme Court says, The president has plenary power in foreign policy, and this is what the founders intended because the founders wanted the country to speak with one voice, the president's, not with the 
now in this day and age, 535 voices in Congress. And so the court gave its imprimatur and stamp of approval uh, to President Roosevelt's doing that. And I think that's why we see that in the modern era. Can you put our current president in context with where some of these other presidents have been able to um, sort of assert their authority? Yes. So he is following in the footsteps of more recent presidents in uses of executive orders, as he did the moment he walked into the Oval Office and had the pictures and the videos taken of him signing various executive orders and holding them up uh, for effect. Uh, So in that sense, he is going straight down the line of modern presidents, both starting with FDR, but more recent presidents, as you point out, if Congress isn't going to act, then the president's going to act. Having said that, we know Donald Trump, however, came to power and was elected by saying, I am going to shake up Washington and I'm not going to do things the way they were done. Um, That's just this sense of I am the deal maker, the Donald Trump persona of I am the deal maker. So I will be doing this much as he said in his acceptance speech at the Republican convention in 2016. Only I, only I can solve the problem. I alone will fix this, right. And and that's not how these other presidents have operated. They may have thought that and they may have behaved that way, but that sounds far too fascistic and dictatorial for typical American political and presidential rhetoric. So most presidents haven't spoken that way. And then we should add on, I think, the element of new media, new social media, 24-7 media, a, a wholly new media atmosphere in which he operates that allows him directly to reach the people at any hour of the day, 24-7, and vice versa. That makes him also completely different from any other president we've had. Obviously, he talks <laughs> differently than any president we've ever had. He behaves differently than any president that that we've ever had. But has he been able to do more, shift the power more to the executive than another president at this point in their tenure? No, I, I don't see that. And to the extent that he seems powerful, and to some extent he is, though the wall controversy should show us that he cannot, with the wave of a wand, suddenly build an entire wall across the entire southern border of the United States, that things are more complex than that, and he has to work with Congress. And as our founders divided up our system into these three branches of the national government, having the Congress with the so-called power of the purse, the president with the power of the sword to execute or carry out the laws, uh, and then have the courts interpret those laws. Presidents were not really supposed to be the policymakers. That was supposed to be the legislative branch. But again, to the extent that he's following in the footsteps of certainly all modern presidents, He's not that different, either by virtue of asserting this authority, asserting this power, but oftentimes not being able to carry it out in practice to the end that he wishes to achieve. How do you think the president has impacted the way that other presidents are going to see executive power? Do you think that it's going to look very different, the presidency and and how a president asserts his or her power will look different post the Trump presidency? It's hard to say because it's hard to know whether there will be a reaction to Trump and his excesses, particularly his excesses of rhetoric, uh, or whether this will unleash forevermore presidents who speak this way and maybe even more important candidates who speak this way and look at the presidency this way and are successful. If that's the case, if there's not a swing back of the pendulum, 
uh, to a different time, uh, to a time in which presidents didn't speak this way and didn't have this kind of rhetoric. If there's not a pendulum swing, much as there was uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, for example, following Richard Nixon. So you get the pure as the driven snow president. I will never lie to you following in the wake of Richard Nixon. If we don't have that pendulum swing, then I think it is the case that Donald Trump will have changed forever, uh, at least the way the president presents himself and how the president speaks. But back to our other point, I don't think that it's had a, a tremendous impact on the power of the president or the actions that he's actually been able to carry out, because we still, at least for now, have the power of Congress to check and the power of the courts to check and the ultimate check, the American people and the voters. Dr. Barbara Perry, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Oh, thank you, Amy. I always enjoy it. Dr. Barbara Perry, Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Hey, you, podcast person, Amy Walter here, host of Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Every week, I'll take you beyond the headlines for a deeper understanding of how Washington works, who's pulling the levers of power, and how it all impacts you. I hope you'll check it out. Just search for Politics with Amy Walter in your podcast app and subscribe. Happy listening. Happy listening.